1993 movie, The Sandlot, was formative for a generation of kids. I remember watching it when I was 13 years old, going to school and quoting it with my friends, right? Such amazing one-liners in this movie. It gave rise to quotes like, you're killing me, Smalls. Or, as we'll find out later on, Squints says, forever. Squints is probably what my nickname will also be after filming this video with the sun right in my face. Uh, there's also the line where they give this great list of uh, Babe Ruth nicknames, the Sultan of Swat, the King of Crash, the Colossus of Clout, the Great Bambino. This movie is incredible. Uh, the heart of the movie is the coming of age story of Scotty Smalls in the summer of 1962. And before entering the fifth grade, he moves with his mother and stepfather to Los Angeles. And in an attempt to make new friends, he tries to play baseball with the neighborhood kids. Now the major issue for Smalls is the fact that he knows absolutely nothing about America's pastime. He doesn't know how to play baseball. He doesn't really know the rules. And all the boys are very skeptical about letting this new kid onto their team. But it's the best athlete in the group, Benny the Jet Rodriguez, who decides to teach Smalls how to play baseball. And the group soon follows suit. They embark on a summer full of shenanigans and life lessons. Check out this short scene from early on in the movie. Stand there and stick your glove out in the air. I'll take care of it. About time, Benny. My claws are going out of style. Here you are. Please catch it. Shut up. have faced a time when we desperately wanted to be on the inside, but we were on the outside. Uh, we have all felt like the new person at some point in our lives, right? Think back to your own life. Can you relate to Scotty Smalls? Maybe it was transferring to a different branch of your company. Uh, perhaps it was moving to a town when you were little, going to a new school or going to college for the first time and having to restart everything. I don't know what it was for you, but I'm sure there has been times when you have felt like you were an outsider and everyone else was a group of insiders. Perhaps it was even within the church. Jesus, the Son of God, knows what it feels like to be on the outside. He knows what it feels like to be on the fringe. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. It says this, When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. And they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. 
But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his hometown. You see what's going on in this passage of scripture. Jesus can't be anybody special. This is the carpenter's son. Okay, the Greek word here for carpenter is tecton. And he was a handyman. Okay, he was, he could, he had the skills to craft doors, uh, make furniture, benches, window frames, trust. This is what Jesus did. This is what he was known for in his hometown. This past week, I tried to become a carpenter. Uh, a while ago, Dex put a hole in our kitchen pantry door and I've never fixed it. And so I went to Home Depot, bought a new door, new handle, new hinges. Should be a simple project, right? Take the door off, put the new door on, done deal. I was way off. At one point, I felt like a caveman because I had a chisel and a hammer and I'm trying to chisel holes into the door on its side so that the hinges are flush. And I felt like Moses, you know, carving out the Ten Commandments. And oddly enough, I know a whole lot more about Moses and the Ten Commandments than I do about carpentry. Finally, I said, I'm done with this. And so I took it to, to Howard Barnwood and Joel uh, helped me like that. And uh, by the way, if you ever need any woodworking done, that is the best place to go. But woodworking is hard. And in the first century, it wasn't a profession that you would work your way up in, right? In the time of Jesus, the world was ordered by rigidly defined social classes. Social mobility was limited, and one would expect to remain in the confines of the class you were born. You had to be born somebody if you were going to be somebody. This was the world in which Jesus grew up in. And Jesus, well, he wasn't born somebody. He was born in a barn. In the world standards, he wasn't anybody. So it's understandable that when Jesus goes to his hometown and all these things are being said about him, about his power, about his authority, about his teaching, everyone's like, who is this guy? Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't, isn't his father a tecton, a, a carpenter? See, we like to picture Jesus in many ways. If Jesus went to our high school, we would think he would be popular. He'd be the, the football player. He would have been the valedictorian. But I think that's us injecting more grandeur onto Jesus than maybe would merit. It also reveals that we're too influenced by the world's standards of judgment and its concerns about prestige. Now, Jesus probably would not have been the jock or the valedictorian. We see in his hometown that Jesus was like Scotty Smalls. On the outside, he was the butt of the jokes. If you have ever been made fun of, if you've ever been on the outside, if you've ever, ever struggled to find friends, Jesus understands. Jesus was like Scotty Smalls. And Jesus is also like Benny the Jet, right? Benny reaches out to the lonely. Look at Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner? You see, when everyone else was mocking Scotty Smalls, Benny was trying to include him. And when everyone else was mocking Zacchaeus, Jesus was including him. Out of those hundreds of people in the crowd, Jesus reached out to this small guy with no friends. Everybody out in the crowd, and Jesus reached out to the one guy that nobody liked. 
And that simple invitation changed Zacchaeus' life forever. See, he was a, he was a tax collector. Uh, he was a, a betrayer of the people. Uh, nobody liked tax collectors. He was an outcast. But Jesus' decision to visit his house was a turning point in his life. And after spending time with Jesus, Zacchaeus commits to restoring anything he's wrongly taken from other people and to give away a huge portion of his wealth. It's amazing what can happen when we take initiative and we reach out to someone and love them like Jesus does. Every interaction, every time you reach out to someone for their benefit is an act of love that has supernatural potential to change someone's life. Maybe just, even right now, pause and, and just maybe say, God, is there someone you want me to reach out to this week? And maybe later on, as you're scrolling, something will remind you of someone. Uh, the Lord works in mysterious ways, but be open to maybe the Spirit's leading in that this week. Now, in the Sandlot, the whole gang is together late one night and squints, begins to tell a scary story. Not just any scary story, he tells the tale of the beast. The giant killer dog that lives on the other side of the fence. The one that they all feared. And it's dark outside and Squints holds the flashlight to his face. And everyone listens as he tells the legend of the beast. The chained up dog that once ate someone but is now on house arrest. And he eats all the baseballs that fly over that side of the fence. And when asked how long the beast will be chained up in his backyard, Squints says the infamous line, FOREVER. Now, this beast has unbelievable power, but it has nothing to do with his core strength. No, the power of the beast is in the fear he evokes. This dog has everyone trapped in fear, and this fear holds them back from doing the one thing that they love more than anything, playing baseball. Fear holds us back as well. If you were to Google the word fear, you'll find over 988 million results in 0.71 seconds. That's an increase by over 400 million in the last four years. Some of you have more fear this week than you had last week. This COVID-19 thing can paralyze us in fear. Fear of getting sick or of any of our family members getting sick fear of losing our job or losing our livelihoods. Fear isn't just in the sandlot about some beast. No, we've got a real life beast that's affecting us now. I read this week and I think it's true. What you fear the most in your life is where you trust God the least. What you fear the most in your life is where you trust God the least. Is that a, is that question is convicting to you as it is to me in this moment. Did you know that in the Bible, the phrase do not fear or a variation of it is mentioned 365 times? That means that every day of the year, God says to us, do not fear. Do not fear. Check out Psalm 3. David says this, Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I awake again. 
because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. How many of us have felt like that? The tens of thousands assail us, but we trust in the Lord. He says that you are a shield around me. It's a very telling phrase. Why? Because there were two kinds of shield. The first kind of shield was small and it was held in one hand and you would do this in hand-to-hand combat, okay? You would move it around and you would use it to block uh, the blows of your opponents. This kind of shield is in no way around you, okay? It's just too small. But there's another kind of shield and it's it's about the size of a door, okay? Kind of like the door that I bought at Home Depot this past week. It's about the size of the door and it wraps around. And this is the shield that David's talking about. But what is this shield for? Because it's not for hand-to-hand combat, it's just too bulky. No, you only use this shield when you're following your general to go and besiege a fortress. In other words, you only need this shield when you're in, when you're going in to horrible danger. This is not a shield that gets you away from danger, it's a shield that goes into danger. You only use this when you're approaching a wall or a fortress and the enemy's launching arrows at you, throwing rocks at you, throwing balls of fire at you, right? You've seen something like this in the movies before. David says, I'm scared, I'm scared, but I remember that you're a shield around me. Your shield, your protection, only works going forward, right? It only works when I'm obeying God. It only works when I'm following Him. It's when we're following our orders to go forward, following Jesus into the battle. The shield is no use if you're running away. If you're running away, it doesn't protect you. Its design is to protect you when you're pursuing going forward, not when you're retreating in fear. Are you moving forward with the shield of God around you or are you retreating, weighed down by something that is meant for your protection? Now, this could get taken the wrong way. I am in no way saying that we don't use wisdom and discernment, especially when it comes to this pandemic, okay? Wear a mask, keep your distance, avoid large crowds, wash your hands regularly. When you do those things, that doesn't mean you're living in fear. No, you're being wise, okay? Uh, going out with the, without a care in the world, saying God's going to protect me, that's not faith. Faith is moving forward in our love of God and our love of others, no matter what disease assails us. No matter what fear confronts us. 1 John 4, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love drives out fear. Anybody need that? Anybody need the perfect love of God to drive out the fear that we have in our lives, that we hold in our hearts, that assails us at night when we're sleeping, the anxiety that gives rise to fear and panic? We need the perfect love that casts out fear. The remedy to fear is love. And love is a choice. There's an ancient fable. Every day an old man sat in his chair and his granddaughter outside uh, the gates of the city and greeting passerbys as they would go into their own town. And one day, a man who seemed to be looking for somewhere to live asked, what sort of town is this? And then the old man says, well, what sort of town do you come from? And the tourist says, well, everyone criticizes everyone. It, it's really bad. And the old man says, well, that's, that's just the way it is here. And the man goes on his way. A few days later, another man asked, so what sort of town is this? And the old man says, well, what sort of town do you come from? And the tourist says, well, it's great. Everyone gets along so well. And the old man says, that's just the way it is here. 
And after the man left, the granddaughter said, how come you told the first guy that this was a bad place to live, and then you told the second guy that it was a good place to live? And the wise old grandpa says, because wherever you go, you take your attitude with you, and that's what makes it good or bad. See, you can harness the power of your imagination to conjure up a future in which you are alone and unloved, or you can use that same power to imagine the truth of the scriptures that says that there is nowhere where God isn't. And there's a God who knows you, a God who loves you, a God who's always by your side, a God who loves you with a fierce love that protects you as you're moving forward in him. Imagine that. Romans 1, Romans 11 1 says this, and this defines faith. Now faith is the confidence of what we hope for in the assurance about we don't, what we don't see. So even if you've never seen the Sandlot, you know what has to happen in the movie, right? They've got to confront their fears. They've got to confront the beast. And when Scotty Smalls hits his first home run, it's bittersweet because the ball that he used was signed by none other than George Herman Ruth, Babe Ruth, the Sultan of Swat, the Colossus of Clout, the Great Bambino. And the ball happens to land in the backyard of the beast. Check out what Benny the Jet does to save his friend. Heroes get remembered, but legends never die. Follow your heart, kid, and you'll never go wrong. As cheesy as it may sound, Benny overcame his fear with love. He, his love for Scotty Smalls and for his team and for baseball was greater than his fear of the beast. And spoiler alert, I cut the clip short there. And in the movie, the beast jumps over the fence and he chases Benny through town. And eventually Benny ends up back at the beast's house where we discover that the beast's real name is Hercules and he's a gentle giant, and he gives the boys all their baseballs back. And his owner, Mr. Myrtle, actually played professional baseball with Babe Ruth. And so he gives Scotty 
a ball signed by not just Babe Ruth, but by the entire 1927 Yankees team. And then the boys keep playing baseball. Hercules becomes their mascot. And the movie ends with Benny the Jet Rodriguez playing in the major leagues for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He steals home, and Scotty Smalls is the play-by-play -play announcer. It's a great movie. And one of the reasons I think that The Sandlot continues to be a fan favorite is because we long for the kind of community that these boys exhibit. This kind of community is not a fictional experience. It can be our story too. It always starts with one person making the choice of friendship, making the choice of love. I have a friend named Jared and we have been friends since college. And he's kind of moved all over the country, but we've, we've, we've stayed in contact, and whenever he's in town, we hang out. And one of those times he was in town several years ago, he asked me to hang out on a Saturday. But Saturday was a rugby day. Uh, this was before kids, and I was playing rugby on Saturdays, and he tells me that he might stop by the game. So he says, well, I want to be able to find you. What number are you going to be? So in rugby, uh, you're not just assigned one number. Okay, In football, if you're number 50, you're number 50 all the time. That's not the case in rugby. Each position has its own number. And there's one position that uh, has two different numbers. You can be one or the other, and it's the wing. The wing position, you can be number 11, or you can be number 14. And so I knew I was gonna play wing that day. I wasn't sure if I was 11 or 14, but I just said, oh, I'm, I'm number 11. So I told my friend Jared, I'm number 11. So I'm out there, and, I, and uh, they're passing out jerseys, and I, I kind of forget that I had told Jared that. And so I just put on jersey number 14, and my friend Dan put on jersey number 11. And uh, we play the game about halfway through the game. I noticed my friend Jared on the sidelines cheering for me. And I noticed that he spent all morning painting the number 11 on his chest. And he's a bigger guy, okay? But what a gesture, right? A grown man looks ridiculous at a Fresno rugby game just to support his friend. But the best part was that my friend Dan was wearing the number 11. And he, on the sidelines, he sees this grown man with his number painted on his chest. Someone he doesn't recognize whatsoever. He was a little freaked out. That's what friends do. They'll risk embarrassment. They'll risk themselves for the benefit of others. That's what true friendship is. That's what true community is. And when you get a community of people who do this, not just for others, but for the benefit of others, that's what the church is. The church should be the only organization in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. The church is at its best when we give ourselves away in sacrificial love to others. So I want to encourage you this week to find ways to do so. To be that kind of person. To be that kind of friend. Whether it's to someone close to you, someone that you have lost touch with or lost contact with, or a stranger. Can you find ways to be the church? The, the organization in the world that exists for the benefit of its non-members. That's what we're called to be. Let's pray. God, we pray in Jesus' name that we would do that that we would uh, grow closer to you, that we would be a people that loves you and loves others and goes out to the world and makes a great difference. We need you. We thank you so much for your love and grace and how you risked it all for us and that you relate to us, the loner, the loser, the disenfranchised, the oppressed, the lonely. You're there for us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Let's worship the King of Kings together.